0: Hello and welcome to The Engineers Collective, a podcast by New Civil Engineer. New Civil Engineer launched The Engineers Collective back in 2019, and since then we have welcomed many guests into the virtual studio to talk about a wide variety of civil engineering topics, including Crossrail, Future Skills, Digital Twins, Net Zero, Learning from Accidents, Digital Construction and more. You can listen to the entire back catalogue of the podcast by subscribing to The Engineers Collective now. If you enjoy listening to today's episode, don't forget you can leave us a review in the podcast client of your choice. To share the podcast with your colleagues, simply visit newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast.
1: So welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith, an editor of New Civil Engineer. I'm co-hosting this instalment alongside our reporter, Rob Hakimian. Our topic today is mega projects and why they frequently far overrun their budgets and timescales. Regular readers of New Civil Engineer will know plenty about Crossrail, which is now known as the Elizabeth Line, and the endless recalibrations that it underwent before being delivered four years late and billions over budget. And it's one of many over budget and time projects we've reported on. But these issues are not just UK ones. You only need to look at Germany and see the struggles with Berlin's Brandenburg Airport, which is said to be cursed because of the number of setbacks and inefficiencies there. It was affected by it finally opened in 2020, 4 billion euros over budget and nine years late. Over in the United States, 15 years on from its opening, Boston's Big Dig project that rerouted Interstate 93 through new towns in the city centre is still infamous for the delays and cost issues. Those issues plus design flaws meant that it took 16 years to construct and was the most expensive highway project in the United States, with the final cost almost tripled the original $2.8 billion budget. Stories of megaprojects going wrong are more common than they ought to be, especially when there's billions of public money on the line.
2: Our guest today is Bent Flupier, who will try to help us understand why this happens and what we could be done to manage megaprojects better. He's the first ET Professor of Major Programme Management at Oxford University's Said Business School and Professor of Major Programme Management at IT University of Copenhagen. He's also the most cited scholar in the world on mega projects, the author and editor of 10 books including his brand new one How Big Things Get Done co-authored with Dan Gardner.
3: Welcome to the podcast Ben. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
2: So, the first question is about this database you've compiled of 16,000 mega projects across dozens of fields from all over the world. I believe you found that less than 10% met their deadline and budget. Were you surprised how low that is and have you seen any improvements over
3: time? So we were surprised when we first uh, identified this very low success rate, which, which we did long before we had 16,000 projects. But at that time, we thought maybe it's because we have too few projects. And that's why we continued collecting projects so that we could see whether the result was actually stable. With the increasing sample size, and it has been, and now also we have other colleagues who are doing similar research to what we're doing. In the beginning, it was only us, but now colleagues are doing the same, and they find similar results. So we're we're actually very confident in in the results. Uh, and it's very low. Uh, you know, it's about eight 8% of, uh, pro- eight percent of eight nine percent of projects are on budget and on schedule. And if you include benefits, so you say on budget on schedule and on benefits then it's only half a percent i mean it's shocking to be but that's that, that's just the the cold facts of the situation has this improved over time uh no we don't see a general improvement when we look at all the projects but i do think that um you know there are pockets of improvement for sure and we can identify those it's just when you when you pool them with all the 16,000 projects then you know it doesn't have much of an impact but Compared to when we started studying this, there's much more awareness of the issues now. And uh, you have whole governments, including in the UK and in Denmark where I'm uh, from, uh, governments who have decided to do things differently and, and, and are beginning to uh, institutionalize uh, rules and regulations in order to improve the situation and uh, executive training and so on.
1: So I just wondered from your analysis, are there any sectors or nations that do better than others when it comes to delivering mega projects on time and on budget? And do you have any insight into why that is, if there is that trend there?
3: Yes. Um, so, of course, this is something that we were very interested in from the outset. And it's a reason that we've collected data from many, many countries, because we wanted to see, is there a country that knows how to do this, a nation that knows how to do this? Because then we could all just study what they're doing, and then we try to imitate them and everything would be fine unfortunately after we are, we are on 130 plus countries now and we haven't found a country that has got this down there are some slight geographical differences like the netherlands is better at delivering rail projects uh, than other countries but it's only a little better so it's not like they get it right it's just that they're, they're less bad you know than other uh, than other countries the united states historically has also been less bad than other countries at delivering big hydroelectric dams. So for for some decades they were pretty good at that. They they had it down. They were doing a lot and so on, and they and they proved to be better than the rest of the world. But it it doesn't again mean that they had it. They did it perfectly and they they didn't do it on budget. They just had lower cost overruns than other nations. So we see uh, small geographical differences like that uh, between nations. The other question that you had was is there a difference between project types? So we've done the same thing. We've studied lots of different project types. By, by now, we are up to 25 different project types. And we are, we are increasing uh, with new project types every year. And here, actually, there is a difference. So uh, actually, a large difference. And it is in the book. We describe this in the book. Uh, so at one extreme, you have projects that are terribly wrong which would include uh, the storage of nuclear waste, uh, the Olympic games, uh, and IT projects. At the other end, you have projects that are doing extremely well, So, and that means uh, no or small cost overrun, no or small schedule overrun, uh, whereas the other end of the scales mean blow out cost overruns, blow out schedule overruns. So at the good end of the scale, we find Wind and solar, so wind farms and solar farms, they completely stand out. Uh, also, um, you know, um, electricity networks. So the grid, you know, building the grid uh, for electricity is also performing uh, pretty well. And uh, so our pipelines and roads, roads are just on the edge between performing well and beginning to p- perform not so well. So that's the good end of the scale. And then, I've, then, of course, the question is, why Why is that? And it's a big difference and statistically very significant difference. And it makes all the difference when you are actually managing projects, because it means that one type of projects uh, is non manageable. They just blow up in your face, uh, the bad end of the scale. And the other type is easy to manage. It's very predictable you can predict things and, and things actually behave the way you expect, whereas the other end of the scale, you can't predict anything and things don't behave the way you, uh, you expect. And uh, the explanation is if you build big from small in a modular way where you have like a Lego building block that is your, your basic building block, if you can build your mega project from a lot of small uh, items, then you can do it in a in a way where it performs well where you don't get the big uh, cost overruns and so on and if you do it bespoke if you do bespoke projects then you get the the underperformance so that's uh, that's you know you know in a brief explanation that's the key the key whether you can standardize things so if you talk about a solar farm it's totally modular. I mean, the basic, the most basic module is the solar cell. So it's born modular. You have a solar cell. You put a lot of solar cells on a panel, then you have a solar panel. You put a lot of panels together, then you have an array, and then you put up a lot of arrayed, arrays, and you have a solar farm. There it is, and you can see how it scales up from this one unit, the solar cell, to the vast, maybe multi-billion dollar uh, solar farm, but it's very simple. The same with a server farm. The same with wind farms. Wind farms are a little, more, um, little less modular, but still they're very modular. It's, it's basically four elements to a wind turbine, a foundation, a tower, a nacelle, and wings that you put on, or blades that you put on the nacelle. Click, 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 you have one turbine, and then you just do it again, you have another, and you have another, and you have another. And so those four basic building blocks, you can actually very quickly uh, build a, a, a wind farm and that's the explanation that you have modularity and speed you'll be okay if you have bespokeness and slowness you will not be okay doing projects
1: from what i was hearing from you about the ones that haven't done so well ones that projects are perhaps delivered infrequently so they're not common projects is that something you'd agree with
3: yes i would um and so if you do something infrequently it means that you you're losing the learning so this is something that is very well studied us as humans, if we do things infrequently, don't get good at them. It's very difficult to learn from things that you do infrequently. This is actually why the modularity works because when you do one module over and over again, it means that you do it very frequently. Not only the thing that you build out of the module, but actually the individual module itself, you become very good uh, at, at doing it because you're doing it over and over. So that, yeah, that is the secret frequency and, uh, the learning that frequency allows is is key here. So for for those more bespoke
2: projects, um, the seeds of trouble are often sown in the planning stage. So for a successful for a project to be successful, what do you think are the essentials that need to be
3: completed at the planning stage? So first of all, that you actually have a planning stage. A lot of projects just jump jump right into the fray, you know, without much planning and without thinking much. There's a real tendency to try to get shovels in the ground here, and this again, uh, and we describe this in the book, this is actually a human bias that we all have, cognitive bias is that we have a propensity to act. We have a propensity to run with the first idea that pops up in our brain and think it's a good idea and not sort of sit back and think, hey, wait a minute, are there other competing ideas here that I should consider that might be relevant to what I'm doing? That's not how our brain works only if we force it. This is what Daniel Kahneman, the famous psychologist and Nobel Prize winner in economics, is what he calls system one thinking and system two thinking. So system one thinking is fast. You just make progress quickly and and use the first idea you get or the first project idea that you come up with. That's system one thinking. System two is slow, deliberate thinking, including planning. So planning is system two thinking. You need system two thinking in order to succeed with projects. Very often, uh, you don't get that system two thinking, but uh, a lot of system one thinking. So that's the first prerequisite. In the book, we call it think slow, act fast. So that's the rhythm of a successful project is that first you think slow, and then you move over to acting, and then you can act fast. You can act fast because you were thinking slow, and by slow, we don't mean spending as much time as possible. We mean spending your time enough time effectively that you can actually sit back deliberate and use system two thinking in in developing the business case for your project and the design and the plans for the project. And if you don't do that, you'll be off to a bad start. And then you get into a situation where you cannot act fast, but you're forced to act slow because there'll be a lot of problems that pop up, you know, during delivery because you hadn't thought about them. You hadn't worked through them during the planning phase. So you get the opposite. Think, fast and then you act slow instead of what's the ideal think slow act fast
1: so when you're moving beyond those planning stages what do you think are the factors for success are that are often overlooked when it comes to delivering mega projects
3: so that's the second part the first part is you need to get the planning right and that's often overlooked then the second part is that you of course need to have a delivery team that know what they're doing so that's when you get to delivery in the acting fast you, know, you need to have a delivery team that has actually tried to do the kind of project that you're doing before. So never hire anybody who has not tried it before and you will be surprised how often that happens. It seems completely commonsensical that like if, 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 if I were remodeling the kitchen in my home, I wouldn't hire somebody who hasn't remodeled the kitchen before for sure. Uh, that's just common sense. We all know that. But when we come to multi-billion dollar projects, you know, you get you get instances where that happens. They hire somebody who's never done it before. Let me give you an example. I was an expert witness on a huge multi-billion dollar hydroelectric dam in a country where they had difficulty uh, recruiting people who had built those kinds of dams before. So the client figure, this country actually had a lot of uh, mega products going on in oil and gas, and and they figured if we can do oil and gas, we can do we can do hydroelectric. So let's hire a team that is used to building oil and gas, and let them build this multi-billion-dollar hydroelectric dam. This is a true story. This actually happened, and of course it went to hell uh, because. Building a hydroelectric dam is not the same as building a mega project in oil and gas. So they actually didn't know what they were doing. So they had a delivery team that did not know what they were doing. So that's the second thing. You need to have a delivery team that is deeply experienced in the field uh, that you are building the project in with that specific type of project that has done it before. And, uh, and you can therefore count on that they know how to do it, that they're competent. That's the second thing. The third thing is that you need to build a whole governance structure around the delivery uh, process and the delivery team where you have the right incentives. So you need an organizational setup and an, an, an incentive setup where people get rewarded for the right things and they get punished for doing the wrong things. Uh, but it's very important, we find from our research, to, be, to have both the stick and the carrot. Unfortunately, often in mega projects historically, it has been more stick than carrot. We find that it works much better if there's also a carrot.
1: So have you got an example for a project that has done the carrot bit well?
3: Yeah. It's in the book Terminal 5 in London Heathrow. It's it's, uh a... It's unfair, it got a bit of a bad reputation because they had, you know, like a month or two of IT hiccups. Uh, So the IT didn't work. Uh, It's it's very often the IT these days. Maybe we can get back to that. Like I I mentioned, IT is one of the worst performing project types, unfortunately. And we are building more and more IT into any project, which is not a good thing, you know, if you think about it. We are building in ticking time bombs into our projects. That's exactly what happened with Terminal 5. So the IT didn't work. But that doesn't mean that the project was a failure. It just means that the, the IT was a failure and, and the rest of the project actually did very well and everything was fine after one or two months. And this is because they got the incentives right. They, they had a lot of carrots, So they, they made it possible for um, you know, the, the builders uh, that were working on the site to make extra money if they, pre- they performed better than expected, according to the plans. And they would get punished if they didn't. They also uh, made a completely different type of contract that's called partnering. So partnering contracts where instead of, instead of the, the client, so this was uh, BAA at the time, the owner of the airport, uh, normally you would try to hire uh, contractors and then allocate the risk to the contractors and it's the, it's the contractor's problem. And that's a recipe for disaster because everybody starts fighting about who's to blame when something goes wrong which is typical. Anybody who's worked on construction sites know this, you know, that there's very much of a blame game going on if you have that type of contract. So BAA a, very wisely decided we are not going to do that. We actually, we as the client, we are going to take on the risk and then we are going to partner with the, with the contractors to solve any problems that come up so they don't start fighting over who's to blame for the risk, but actually focus on solving the problem instead of uh, f- uh, focusing on whether they're to blame for the risk or not, and this worked really well. Wow, well, very interesting.
2: Um, we, you were talking earlier a bit about the modular approach to these kind of projects. Is that possible with something more unique?
3: And if so, what what kind of module size is optimal? It is possible. So we deliberately actually studied this in the book. We said we 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 gave ourselves uh, Dan and I set ourselves the task of finding a project that. You would expect it to be impossible to do in a modular fashion. And, and, and generally, people think the more you have to go underground and dig, the less predictable things are, because you never know what you find underground, right? You might find uh, rocks that you didn't expect, you might find archaeological sites that you didn't know were there, and they, then you have to stop construction and so on. So we decided to, uh, to study urban rail, underground rail, and uh, we found an example in Madrid, you know, where they had uh, used a modular approach for building uh, one of the largest uh, metro extensions in the world outside of China. So hundred around 130 kilometers of uh, new uh, subway, 90% of which was underground, 70 plus uh, new stations, you know. And uh, Madrid did it in half the time at half the cost compared to your average uh, subway system now that's pretty impressive half the cost half the time they did it in four years and it usually takes eight to ten years to do something like this. So what was the secret it was modularity and they and a few other things but let's let's focus on the modularity um, first of all they decided every station is going to be the same. So you get this uh, repetition and learning that we talked about earlier, right? That, that you just do 70 plus stations over and over again instead of some cities actually decide that each station has to be a monument and they hire different architects and different artists for each station. Now, if you wanna do art, that's probably a great idea. If you want a subway, that, that is uh, you know, gonna be well functioning and delivered on time and to budget. It's a really bad idea and that's very well documented. So you have to decide what you want. Do you want a piece of art or do you want a subway? And I don't think it's that great of an idea to mix the two. At least that's what the data show. And and that's what the leadership in Madrid decided. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do like they've done on some lines in, in London, in Moscow, in New York, you know, and so on. We are going to have like a really clean, functional station. That's what they have and they are beautiful station. Very roomy, very light, uh, and you and they thought a lot about how people orient themselves in the station so they couldn't be confusing. It had to be so that you can actually see long sight lines uh, to where you were going and so on. It's really, really well designed. If you haven't been there, I recommend going and ride the Madrid Metro a bit. So that's the station. That was one, one module, right? The second module was uh, the tunnels and they decided let's figure out what the optimal length is to bore for one tunnel boring machine with one team so you use tunnel boring machines for doing this kind of thing uh, and uh, they found that it was between 3000 and 6000 meters uh, uh, done in a few hundred days and And then they just hired as many tunnel boring machines as team as they needed, you know, which is completely unconventional. Now it's more conventional, but at that time, that was revolutionary. Mostly people would just hire one tunnel boring machine or two tunnel boring machines, and then they would just let them grind on until the job was finished, you know. And that might be 10 years, it might be 15 years. No, in Madrid they said uh, we are going to get like uh, however many tunnel machines are necessary to do that bit that we are building now, and that might be six tunnel boring machines, and they would just get them in there and start tunneling these optimal modules of three to six thousand meters, depending on what, kind, what part of the city they were in and what kind of underground they were in. And um, then they got something they hadn't expected, and that was, was that the, the tunnel boring team started to compete against each other. They would compare notes when they met at the tapas bars in the evening and they would figure out how many meters did you do today? How many meters did you do today? And nobody wanted to be last, right? So they got the Olympics of tunnel boring going underground under Madrid, which nobody had planned on. It just happened spontaneously. So you, you can also, I mean, uh, you can be lucky sometimes and get something like this. And it actually sped up the process. And this is one part of the explanation that things uh, uh, went so fast, but but as they say, you know, lock uh, 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 benefits those who are prepared, and they were very prepared in in Madrid. So those are the two two main things regarding modularity that made the Madrid Metro so successful in terms of cost and in, in, in terms of fast delivery.
1: Great. Rob, it sounds like you and I need a field trip to Madrid to go and have a look at that, I think. Anyway. Yeah, that's fine so, with me. <laughs> brilliant. Ben, I wondered, do you think delays and overruns on mega projects, are they usually failures on a personal level or a systemic level, do you think?
3: I mean, when we see the data and uh, the very high failure rates that we identify, you have to start thinking there is something systemic going on here. Uh, But it's systemic uh, in the sense that it, it actually it covers a lot of things so like it covers like what we talked about before like choosing the right teams the education that people have and so on the knowledge in with the clients you know are that are the clients prepared to do the big projects and often they're not you 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 need an intelligent client is what it's called in order to be successful with the product so actually an an informed client uh, that knows uh, what they're doing uh, that that's really important and often that is not the case uh, so it is systemic in the sense that there are all these things that need to apply if you're going to be successful that don't apply. So in that sense, it is systemic. I wouldn't, I wouldn't single out one person ever on a mega product and say, it's this person's fault, you know, or it's this team's fault. It's, it's very often not as simple as that, you know, it, it's, uh, with big ventures like this, it's, it's, uh, almost always a complex of things, you know, that, that, uh, Uh, interact and then make uh, things go south
1: so just thinking about the personal side of things a bit more rather than being individual is it perhaps project teams not thinking about the evolution of the management team that perhaps they need different skills at different stages and perhaps that's something that projects don't consider very often
3: that's one thing there are lots of things so first of all you need to get a team like we talked about the the right team this is one of the the heuristics that we have identified that every and this is the only heuristic actually that every uh, mega project leader that I've ever talked to emphasize when I when I asked them so what what's the important thing to do when you're doing a mega project and say get the team right and that's very important. And 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 like you say the right team may be different or will be different actually at different stages of delivery. Uh, so you need to adjust the team uh, uh, as you go along uh, too uh, and uh, it's probably the, the most important thing if you can choose only one thing uh, you need to uh, get the team right and one one person that we uh, interviewed for the book uh, Ed Catmull the former CEO of Pixar movies uh, so we also studied we studied all kinds of projects not only infrastructure projects but also movies and writing a book hosting a wedding, putting on a conference, uh, having a house renovation, and so on. Because we find that these things are general, you know. Uh, so uh, so um, uh, it's not only about the big projects, and one thing we find is key here is psychology. Uh, because all these projects, whether they're big or small, or no matter where on the planet they are made, are made by humans. So whatever quirks we have in our psychology, and we have many quirks in our psychology, we know that, but including for delivery of projects, we have cognitive biases that very much impact uh, outcomes. And this is a thing that the teams need to be aware of when you talk about people. People need to be aware of the cognitive biases and they actually need to have enough self-reflection. This is again system two thinking. They need to have enough self-reflection that they put themselves in system two thinking mode and start thinking about what are our biases here and de-bias their projects, de-bias their business cases, de-bias all their decisions. If you don't do that, you get one biased decision after another, and you can be sure that you get failure on the project. That's just the way it is. And we describe this uh, in the book with good stories about you know people who were biased and, and did things. So one of the
2: UK's most troubled mega projects and, and one that you've spoken about a bit, and I think it comes up in the book a few times is HS2. Uh, I was wondering if you if you look at HS2 and all its current issues, are you able to see any obvious point where they've made mistakes that could
3: have been avoided? I think that uh, for HS2, the biggest problem is actually dithering, you know, that it is stop, go. And, and uh, you know, you've had there's been so many <laughs> different uh, governments in the UK lately that it's ridiculous. Right. So you have one uh, new government after the other that are coming in. Right, we had one year with three governments or something like that. Right. Three prime ministers in one year, and they make competitions on the front page of newspapers. They put up uh, a cabbage head and the prime minister, and ask who lasts the longest. This is the kind of society. It is not conducive for doing mega projects. That's all I can tell you. So you have governments that uh, change their minds about a multi billion. This is actually you know around a hundred billion pounds project. It's 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 mind-blowingly big. The biggest project in all of Europe, right? And you uh, keep changing your mind about it. That's a recipe for disaster. And this is what has happened. Uh, like Then you decide that it's going to go to Manchester. Then you decide it's not going to go to Manchester. And then you decide that it's going to... Uh, you know, uh, go to two different cities in the north, and then you decide it's only going to go to one city in the north, and then you decide it's going to go into London, then you decide it's not going to go into London, you know, Houston Station. You start building in London on Houston Station and, and doing construction there, but then you say, by the way, we're not going to use that in the near future because we're actually going to end the line in the suburbs of London instead. That's, I take to be the. Uh, most damaging parts of the planning uh, and i call it dithering or changing your mind you know stop go and it's a classic it's it's something that everybody who works on projects know that you have to make up your mind and once you make up your mind you deliver what you made up your mind to deliver because otherwise it's going to be a lot more difficult and a lot more expensive so that's what i see as the main problem with HS2 so
1: it's make up your mind and make sure it's not biased when you do make up your mind
3: exactly Exactly.
1: So when it comes to publicly funded projects in the UK, is there an inherent issue in the fact that politicians are focused on their current parliament and not looking long term, which is an issue you highlighted just now?
3: Yes, um, that is an issue, you know, that uh, politicians are often uh, in parliament or in office for a shorter period of time than it takes to plan and deliver a mega project. So there's a there's a mismatch between those different time horizons, and people can make decisions. They say, "Hey, I'm not going to be here anyway, you know, when this is completed." Uh, and that there's a concern there that that might actually result in a certain lack of accountability. Uh, and if you don't have accountability, well, we know if accountability doesn't work, then uh, the results suffer, and you'd get the kind of underperformance that we actually see. So yes, that is an issue. There are different ways to get around that. and and enlightened countries uh, actually make agreements, so separate agreements from what uh, is going on in parliament and 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 and, and specific laws. So, The political parties, let's say if it were the UK that we talked about or the US, you would have, it's simple because there's only two parties, uh, basically two main parties, uh, the Tories and, and Labour in the UK and the Republicans and the Democrats in the US. And uh, they would make an agreement regarding any big project, so say HS2, and they would, re- uh, they would make an, a, a written agreement that is independent of whoever is in government. So whoever of the parties are, are leading a government, they will work for this agreement, and they commit to that before. So, uh, so other countries are doing those kinds of things because they're very aware of this issue, and this is a way to work around the issue. Uh, that actually works, so we have, we have uh, evidence that this works.
2: That definitely sounds like the kind of thing that our government could uh, look into. But uh, one of the other, what you could call a mega project that they're currently tackling and governments all over the world are tackling is decarbonizing the energy system.
3: Uh, are, are you following this, their efforts so far and, and what would you do? How would you approach it? Very much. I mean, our, the last chapter in, in the book is about that. Uh, we, we think that's the most important mega project in the world, period. There is no more important project. I see two main trends uh, that are mega trends worldwide. One is uh, uh, decarbonization, and the other is digitalization. These are massive trends, you know, and they affect all of us everywhere. There's no part of the planet that is not affected by these two mega trends. Uh, so we deal with both of them in the book. And regarding decarbonization, uh, it's very interesting, actually, because energy projects come in two types, and they are at the opposite end of the scale that I talked about earlier, where you have the well-performing projects at one end and the badly performing, really badly performing projects at the other end. And and energy projects are polarized like that. They are not in the middle. They are They are either at one end or the other. And the explanation is modularity that we talked about before. So the... The projects that are at the bad end of the scale are hydroelectric dams that we already talked about. They are nuclear power plants uh, that are even worse. Uh, And uh, they don't do well, even though they are actually very good from a carbon point of view, they are just uh, too difficult, too costly, and uh, take too long a time to meet the 2030 deadline and the 2050 deadlines in our analysis. But we're lucky that at the other end of the scale, we actually have uh, wind and solar and uh, and they're doing extremely well. And uh, not only in theory, in practice, uh, you know uh, uh, there's a real humongous scale up right now, as we're speaking actually, of uh, solar and uh, and wind around the world. And the price has come down so far that it's cheaper than any other energy type now. Uh, so it's very competitive, uh, which of course is why it scales up so quickly. So in our analysis, we, we we have to stay away from these bespoke and slow projects like hydro and nuclear, and we have to do more of the, uh, you know, batteries are another modular uh, type, and uh, and uh, also do uh, solar and, and wind. We don't think that you should close down nuclear power plants and so on and, and close down hydroelectric dams. We very much need them for baseload, and also hydroelectric dams are now being changed into... A kind of batteries where you pump water up when you have too much electricity. So Denmark and Norway are connected like that. Denmark is very big on wind, just like the UK is actually very big on wind, and, and it's probably the country in the world that has made the fastest progress on wind, maybe apart from China. Uh, and uh, in Denmark, when there's too much wind, uh, the electricity is exported to Norway, and they use it to pump up water into uh, the reservoirs. And then when There's not enough wind, the water runs down and produces electricity. So that's the kind of thinking we need, you know, where we interlink the different parts of the energy system. We need a lot more transmission because with a variation in solar and uh, wind, you know, uh, you can't have a very small geographical area. That's not enough to absorb the variation that you get uh, from the sun shining or not and the wind blowing or not. So. So that's another thing that is happening now at enormous speed. The grid is being built out in order to so that you can actually transport electricity over much larger distances than uh, we did before. So that's that's how we see it. And and we are actually very optimistic about uh, being able to decarbonize the world because we're just lucky that we have the right technologies, you know, at the right time, maybe a little late. I mean, it would have been good if we had started this 10, 20 years before we did. But uh, the situation is not hopeless in our analysis.
1: So I just wonder, do you think that small modular reactors are going to help bridge that gap between the, the solar and the wind and the big nuclear power plants? Do you think that's the key to it all?
3: I hope so, but to be frank, nobody knows. So if anybody said that they know that they are, uh, either they have a secret insider knowledge or they don't know what they're talking about, one of the two because right now we don't even have a prototype of uh, small modular reactors or SMR as they're called. Uh, But uh, I would almost say, you know, given we we study uh, nuclear power, uh, conventional nuclear power, big uh, nuclear power plants, and they don't perform well, you know, generally. And uh, we conclude in the book that if there is a future for nuclear power, it will be with small modular reactors. So I hope that but we, we don't know yet, and and probably, you know, given that we don't have a prototype, it's not going to be fast enough, certainly not for 2030, but not, maybe not even for 2050, you know. That's my main concern regarding even small modular reactors. That doesn't mean I think that work on them should stop. I think it's great that Rolls-Royce and and others, and Bill Gates, you know, and others in Silicon Valley are investing in this and exploring the possibilities. That's exactly the kind of experimentation that we need. and. And that's the kind of approach that we argue for in the book, that we need to experiment with these things in order to find out what works and what doesn't. It's the only way to find out.
1: Okay, so we'll watch and wait on that one. So mega projects are judged on on their cost and delay, but do we need to readjust our thinking to value them based on their outcomes a bit more? Because you talked a little bit about outcomes right at the beginning function?
3: So uh, outcomes, that's why we do them. I mean, so that's where our main focus should be, it just, it just turns out that it's easier to measure cost and schedule. So that's what we measure, and that's what we talk about. It's ridiculous in a way, you know. We should be focused on benefits. But benefits are much harder, or outcomes are much harder to measure. And very often, actually, nobody is measuring it after a project has been done. There's no systematic uh, data collection on whether we actually achieve the benefits that we set out to uh, achieve and so on. Uh, we, ha- we We... we, we we, we' do making a lot of effort to get good data on benefits because we do think that it's the most important part of project delivery. Uh, it's very difficult. I mean it's very difficult to get good data on cost and schedule. It's about 10, 20 times as difficult to get uh, good data on benefits and and the way I measure difficulty is how much data do we have to discard you know when we collect data, what is the quality of data? we only include high quality data so so data that will pass, the litmus test in a university, that, that the data has to be valid and reliable, so we are not using what consultants are using and so on, only the highest standards. And when we use those standards, we have to throw out about 10, 20 times more data for benefits than for cost, and we still throw out maybe 50% of the data that we collect for cost. You know,
1: It's not quite there on that yet. So maybe, are we setting the wrong goalposts when it comes to cost and time? So there was a big criticism around Crossrail that they set the deadline to opening it December twenty eighteen, and there was no kind of justification for why they did that. Are we making life hard for ourselves, setting the wrong goalposts?
3: No, I think that you need goalposts. This is some. This is a way to coordinate the effort. So, like otherwise, everybody would be running around asking, "When does this need to be done by?" You know, if we if we didn't have goalposts like that, so we do need the goalposts, but we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't pretend that they're, they're the goal of the project, right? It's not the goal of the project to meet the opening dates. Only if you're doing the Olympics, then it actually is a goal that you want to meet the opening date. but, but There's for, definitely
1: a hard deadline on that.
3: Exactly. For a red line uh, like the Elizabeth line, it shouldn't like it's not the end of the world if you if you need to uh, push the opening date uh, you know a couple of months in one direction or the other. In fact, I mean, we have examples, including in the book of projects that open early. They're much more rare, but they do exist, just to be clear. Uh, And uh, uh, yeah, so the point is that uh, we we do need uh, budgets and schedules, but they're not the purpose of doing the projects. The purpose is, uh, you know, all the benefits that these projects are supposed to deliver.
1: Brilliant to say. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. That's just about all we've got time for. The conversation has been fascinating.
3: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: I think it's clear from what we've discussed today, there's lots to learn from past projects. Although I do wonder what we would actually fill our news pages and our website with on New seven Engineer if all the projects started to run on time and on budget. But I think based on our conversation, the rate the industry is going, I think I will have retired by the time that happens. The if it happens is the challenge I leave our listeners with today. So I hope you've found some sage advice in Ben's words. And I hope you join us again soon for another episode of The Engineers Collective.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to give us some feedback by leaving a review and share this podcast with your colleagues by visiting newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. We'll be back soon with more guests and insight here on The Engineers Collective.